it took us a few minutes to get the audio levels set correctly. I think you can hear all of it, but it does become much quieter in a few minutes. We're glad to have him here. As president of uh, Emmaus Bible College, I, I know I had a little encouragement talk with Caleb Urbasic and said, Caleb, pay attention. This is the president of this university. Uh, you might need a nice reference in the future to getting into a college like his. And you have to remind him one day that you met him early on in Cincinnati. Right, Caleb? Yeah, there you go. Well, it is a privilege to have Phil Boom here. He is a full-time worker with the ministry. He's traveling to conferences. He's traveling to assemblies uh, all over the country. It's, it was good to visit with him yesterday. And, and Phil, we had a nice discussion a little bit uh, about Emmaus uh, and uh, uh, even a couple of questions we had. It's been fun to introduce you to a lot of people here at Northern Hills Bible Chapel and to have you uh, even out at the Fall Festival uh, uh, last night meeting a lot of people by the uh, open fire pits and uh, tables of food and the horseback riding and all the things that we enjoyed uh, yesterday. Uh, so again, welcome. Let me invite you. Come on up, Phil, and share what the Lord has put on your heart for us. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for the very kind introduction. And I would like to address this morning the topic of obedience. Ah, that's a bad word. That's a dirty word, right? Sounds like, you know, a heavy word, obligations. Sounds like an Old Testament word, maybe. But I would like to address it in the phrase called the obedience of faith. And we're going to look at uh, Joshua, the opening verses of Joshua, the book of Joshua, uh, God's mandate to Joshua, to Joshua. But we're going to begin in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, and we're going to see how Paul uses this term, the obedience of faith, in the epistle to the Romans in his uh, inspired writings. The apostle uses this term as bookends to his epistles. So starting in Romans chapter 1, it first appears in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And it is given as the key to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read verses 1 through 5. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a lot of words and phrases. We could spend a week on that. I'm not competent to do so. But that's, that's an amazing introduction, which then leads into verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So Paul introduces this term here in the opening salvo of his epistle to the Romans, and it appears here as the key, as he mentions, the key to the gospel uh, to bring about the obedience of faith 
amongst the Gentiles. So Paul reminds us, and I would remind us along with him here in following the scriptures that the true gospel, the true gospel which we believe in demands a specific set of beliefs. The gospel is not wishy-washy, believe whatever you want, easy believe, uh, if you want it this way or you want it that way. The gospel includes a specific set of beliefs about God, about man, about what the nature of mankind is, about sin, about redemption, and these are just among many elements, but the gospel is a very specific thing, redemption, and a, but ultimately also, beyond all that, it's a willingness to actually live according to those beliefs and obey God and live holy lives according to his calling. That's where we'll get to in Joshua that the gospel is not just a specific, it is very specific. It involves things that we must believe. I'd refer to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, just as a side note. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So says Paul. And he goes on to give specific elements of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel involves specific beliefs. You've got to believe it. But it involves also living it. So a willingness to live according to the beliefs of the gospel and live holy lives that obey God's calling to us. So Paul uses the very same phrase at the end of Romans. We'll turn to Romans chapter 16. So you see Paul has this passion for the gospel and for the Gentiles. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 to 27. Now, to him who is able to establish you, the Romans, you, the northern Hillsians, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery... That's been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made manifest, has been made known to all the nations, leading to what? The obedience of faith. So once again, a, the, gospel, uh, the epistle of Romans closes with this loaded set of intense little verses here that speak about the revelation of God and God's ability to keep us. But he leads toward this phrase here again in concluding the book of Romans, just as he opened it, that his passion is that the Gentiles would come to the obedience of faith, that he would make known to all the nations the gospel, but that the gospel involves not just a set of concepts and beliefs, not just fuzzy stuff that's out there that would be nice if everybody subscribed to, but an actual lifestyle of obedience to those concepts and a walk that's consistent with them. Paul reminds me personally, as he says now to him who's able to establish you, it reminds each of us personally, I believe, of our source of strength and from where do we receive the ability 
to live according to the gospel. It doesn't come from within. I can't do it on my own. I'm not able to bring myself to salvation, and neither am I able to keep myself walking with the Lord. It's unto him who is able. And Paul gives this as a supernatural revelation, and it's enabled through the resurrection power of God, and it leads to obedience of faith. So faith and works, they are two forces that work together. We, we know Paul speaks about that. Uh, James speaks about that in his epistle too. Um, we know that our obedience and our works are evidence of our faith. They're not the cause of our faith. But if faith resides, if it's real, then obedience will follow. And we, we look for that in one another. We look for that in ourselves. We stumble, we fall, but yet the Lord gives us strength to continue on. Hebrews 11, verse 6, you don't need to turn there, but uh, you know that verse, the role of faith, uh, him who comes to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek God. Uh, and when we put ourselves out there, on the line for him, it may not be death, it may not be the sufferings that the saints in Hebrews suffered, but we give our personal lives to him, and he blesses and, and helps us. So let's turn to the book of Joshua, and let's see how this plays out in an example. I love the book of Joshua. I love the opening section of that book. It's inspirational to me. It's been uh, provided me a lot of personal guidance in my walk and inspiration. Uh, I keep a plaque on the wall in my office uh, that reminds me of uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 7, to only be strong and courageous and be careful to do according to all that the law was given. Let me read verses 1 through 9, and we'll work our way through some thoughts in this passage and May the Lord bless this passage, and at the end of this time of ministry, if I don't go too far over time, I'd like to share uh, a little video of Emmaus Bible College and share a couple of things about Emmaus. But let's have the word first, so let's read uh, as we think about obedience of faith and the charge given to uh, Joshua upon the death of Moses. Now, it came about... After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which, my, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it 
to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong, courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The obedience of faith. So, stepping back for a moment, the book of Joshua falls under the genre of what we call a biblical narrative. It's a historical book. It tells a story, but I don't like to use the word story. Story seems like fairy tale or something like that. So I, I, I love to use the term narrative. Uh, it, it indicates a historical account of something that actually happened. And in this passage, we see a plot that develops. Just like in any good novel or any good story, we see things developing from the beginning of the book through the end. And this particular passage sets that entire plot for the book. Uh, the, uh, the servant of the Lord, Joshua, is introduced as the main character. He's, he's the man in this story, so to speak, in this narrative. And therefore, the book written is titled, The Book of Joshua. Uh, the history and context of the Lord's promises to Moses are reviewed here in the beginning of the book. So the book follows prior narratives. It doesn't just sit by itself. It comes in a, in a context of a prior narrative, and it continues the story of the Old Testament. And the challenge is delivered to Joshua. It's a very clear challenge. Obedience will result in victory, in rest, and in fulfillment of the promises already made to Joshua. These are not new promises. As he says here, you know, have I not commanded Moses in the past? Have I not commanded you? So, but obedience will result in victory and in rest and in fulfillment of the promises made to Moses. So obedience is a key here. And so obedience is important for us. Now, there are good observations that we can make from this passage from the very beginning. Uh, there are important terms used. The, uh, I've mentioned already that the passage opens with the word, now it came about after the death of Moses. So it follows a prior narrative that gives us context for this one. There are, uh, there are books of the Bible that are not placed sequentially. We know, for example, the book of Job is uh, likely has been placed as the, one of the first books written, is maybe the oldest. But in, in this, so not everything flows, but in this particular case, it actually does. This follows directly from the account in Deuteronomy uh, and the charge given to Moses and the things that were enjoined of him. So the passage opens with the word after, but then what does verse 2 say? Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore. So you see this continuation. This comes after something else, but now then comes something new that the Lord presents to Joshua personally. And actually, it's not a tremendously new message. It's a continuation, but it's a new leader. And God refreshes his message to this same one and says, now that was before, now this is now. 
So there are specific people mentioned in this passage as we kind of look at this and, and just do the observation. You know, I learned this stuff at Emmaus Bible College. It's called hermeneutics. You know, it's a fancy word. But you start by just looking at what it says, right? Uh, before we jump into what it means and what we should do with it and how it correlates to other parts of the Bible. So here we are. We just look at the observation of what it says here. There are specific people mentioned, those who were involved in the history and the development of the plot of this book. Uh, how many times is Moses... Isn't this book called Joshua? Yeah, again, it emphasizes the uh, after the death of Moses. Moses is actually mentioned six times, as I count it, uh, just in these few verses that I read. So it's very important to the writer that we understand the history, that this follows something. In case you didn't get that message yet from, from the opening of this book here, this follows a prior account. Moses is mentioned many times. He's identified uh, and described as Moses, my servant, Moses, the servant of the Lord. So over and over again, we see that there were those who served the Lord before Joshua. We have that instruction too. I'm jumping out of the, I guess, the hermeneutical flow, but, you know, remember those who served before you. We're told to remember the outcome of their faith and imitate their conduct. And here we have Joshua being told the same thing, that Moses is ser uh, three times he's identified in this section, in this opening narrative, that uh, Moses was my servant. There's something else that's mentioned that's, you know, you might say is morbid, uh, but it, the Lord says twice, Moses, my servant, is dead. You know, and he says it again. He says it in verse 1, and then it comes again in verse 2. You know, after the death of Moses, and then in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. So there's perhaps a lesson that we can foresee as well. Uh, life moves on. Uh, God calls you, God calls me to lives of obedience. He gives us examples of those who were before, but we can't live their lives, and they can't live your life. So Joshua had to bring new leadership, had to bring his personality, what God had endowed him with. Uh, but it was reminded that uh, Moses was a great servant, but, you know, Moses isn't here anymore. And uh, there was, of course, a background story to that. Uh, Moses' time had come. Perhaps if Moses had not exhibited rebellion for a brief moment, perhaps Moses might have still been there. But, you know, might have, could have, I don't know. Such is life and such is our journeys. We stumble, we fall, we move on. God calls us, God uses us. But he has others who come after us. And if you're the one who is after, he has those who came before you. So we look back, we look forward. So Joshua is introduced, his lineage is mentioned. He's the son of Nun. That's another just observation fact, not much that I have to say about that. The Lord identifies himself in this opening passage as well as the voice directly speaking his instructions to Joshua without any intermediaries. So the Lord identifies himself. This is the word of the Lord, as it's often said when people read the Bible. But this is the word of the Lord to Joshua. This was directly to him. There was no, one, there was no more Moses saying, Joshua, this is what the Lord told me when I was in the tent of meeting. This was where the Lord spoke to him, how the Lord spoke to him. The Lord spoke to him. 
That's what we know. The Lord gave his message directly to Joshua. So the Lord also specifically names the Israelite people. So you see the unfolding of this narrative and this plot. You've got Joshua. You've got Moses the past. You've got um, Moses' heritage, uh, Joshua's heritage. You've got the Israelites specifically named. The Lord refers to them in a number of cases here as these people. So these are the people that Joshua is to lead. He is given people to lead. There's a specific group of people. Others are mentioned uh, in these verses as opponents. And a conflict with them is enjoined. God expects them to enter into a battle. He says, these people you're leading and those people you're opposing. And finally, uh, one of the other things that God says is that no one will be able to stand against you. The battle lines are drawn by the Lord. You're the leader, not Moses. He's gone. These are your people. Those are your opponents. And then right there, that central verse uh, and the conclusion that no one will be able to stand against you if you obey, if you follow my instructions, if you walk in the way that uh, I instruct you. So the land is the specific heritage and blessing that the Lord has for them, and he expects them and is empowering them to receive that land, but is also enjoining upon Joshua that you've got to obey me, man. Uh, this isn't an automatic uh, this isn't just going to happen if you stand there and do nothing. You need to obey. You need to walk in my ways. I've given you these commandments. Moses has given you commands before. So follow them, listen to them, do them, and I'll be with you. Verse 3 does provide a, a, a sense of uh, history. Again, as he says, just as I spoke to Moses. So we continue to see like themes popping out of the word here, verse 3, he says, uh, Moses, my servant, is dead. Rise across the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them. I'm sorry, verse 3, every place the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. So the continuation, a sense of history. Uh, we can look back at history as well. Uh, if we think about what the Lord spoke to Moses, just as I spoke to Moses, it's what in Deuteronomy, is called the Mosaic Covenant. It's, it's rich. There's a lot we could examine in that. What is it that God actually spoke to Moses? It wasn't just, oh, here you go. Here's the land. Go get it. And by the way, Joshua is going to be the next leader. I'm going to it's rich, rich in instructions, in obligations, in promises, in blessings. So there's much to look back at as Joshua is instructed just as I spoke to Moses. That phrase, again, is loaded and rich. Another observation, verse 7, provides uh, a sense of authority as well, a sense of authority where it refers to the law that my servant Moses gave you. So it wasn't just, uh, just as I spoke to Moses in verse 3. That's good, and it's recorded. But the sense of authority is given where he says in verse 7 to be careful to do according to all the law. So the law gives a sense of obligation. This is serious now. I gave Moses the law, and the law is not just the Ten Commandments. It encompasses the covenant and all that was in 
the five books of Moses, so I gave you this law. The Lord provided written instructions to Joseph. We have them too. By the way, it's called the Word of God, right? The Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. But, but God had given Joshua more than just a verbal voice in the desert speaking to him, but had actually given him the written instructions of the law of Moses. And perhaps finally in these observations, I said finally before, but there's always more, right? Verse 8 finally is the, uh, what I would call a conditional uh, cause and effect relationship. It's, it's crucial. It's the conclusion, conclusion of this brief passage, but it's a cause and effect relationship. It says, then you will be prosperous and successful. The word then is a conditional word, right? It says, if X, Y, Z, then A, B, C. Maybe it should be the other way around. If it, <laughs> but if and then. And it's a, a key to the introduction of the plot that unfolds through the book of Joshua. It directs us to look back, uh, to look at what was immediately preceding, and to look at the promises that follow. Now, we know, if we've read the book of Joshua before, I'm sure we have, we know that the people were not perfect in following the instructions. And God was not able to grant them all of the promises and fulfill them completely. Nevertheless, God sets this forth. This is not fake. God gives it to them and says, look, if you do this, then... The following will happen. And it could have happened, but of course they were human. So in my life, sinless perfection will not happen either. It did not happen in Joshua's life. Uh, so there were failures, there were setbacks. But nevertheless, the Lord's promise stands that then you will be prosperous and successful. So when we fall and stumble, our life might not be like a linear curve that just goes directly up and continually forward. We will have our ups and downs, but we can continue to fall back on these promises of God, just as Joshua did, even when they stumbled, when they did the wrong thing, when there was sin in the camp. The Lord says, okay, get up. Stop crying about this. Let's obey and let's get on to the next move, okay? Yes, you flunked that one, but we've got another one for you, and the promise is not dead. So we need to be encouraged in that too when we think about the obedience of faith and the gospel and living according to it that uh, a failure does not mean all is lost. It means we get up and get moving again. And God's promises are yea and amen. They don't quit. So be encouraged in that. So let's delve into a little bit more of the um, interpretation maybe and ask ourselves, what is the significance of the, the Mosaic Covenant and the promises that God made prior to the time of Joshua? How does it relate to this unfolding story, this plot that we're looking at? So the book of Joshua, in fact, as we've seen then, it was written to motivate Israel to faithfully obey God so that he could make them a blessing. Why did he want to make them a blessing? for his own glory, also so that they could be a light to the depraved nations around them. Uh, the message of the book is if they would live in, in holiness, if they would obey God, God would give them the land, God would give them victory, God would 
allow them to rule over their enemies. He would fulfill his promises under the Mosaic Covenant. And furthermore, they would be a testimony and a light to the Gentiles. It was never God's idea to just choose the people of Israel and that they were his only special blessing and everyone else was out in the dark. It was God's intent that they would be a light that would shine. And perhaps the nations would glorify. Isn't that what we look forward to in the millennium? That all the nations will come to Israel and all the nations will be blessed through them. And that's how we're blessed in Christ as children of Abraham. We're, we're blessed through the gospel, even though the nation of Israel, the people of God, his chosen ones, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They crucified him. We came into blessing through that. And God's, what a, what a blessing. Through their lack of faith, we came into faith. So that's a sideline. But that was God's intent from the beginning. He wanted them to be a light, not just to be his only people. God would have loved for all the world to be his people. God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's true today. So a number of themes are opened uh, in this section, of course, as, again, as we're looking at it, the transfer of authority from Moses to Joshua, the fulfillment of Moses' promises, God's reassurance of his support for the people as they went on this journey, and, again, the centrality of obedience as a concept, obedience to the instructions of Moses. You can trace all of these ideas from this opening passage, of course, through the whole book of Joshua. The entire narrative, we observe victories by faith, failures and setbacks through lack of faith. The, the message here to Joshua includes a, a very strong challenge to the people of Israel, the challenge to choose obedience. It's the same challenge that Moses set forth to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab in the closing chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, choose life, Moses enjoined upon them. Listen to the commandments, obey God, and you'll be blessed. If not, you'll be cursed. So God set before them life and death through Moses, and this continues as God desires to fulfill his promises. Joshua presents the challenge here in the beginning of the book. The Lord presents it to him, and Joshua presents it forward to the people. And between the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, remember Joshua says, Choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house... I will serve the Lord. So there also comes a point of accountability in our personal lives. When those around us, those who Joshua was leading, they didn't all follow. They didn't all go the way. Some of them at that point were looking back and saying, oh, man, remember, you know, our ancestors in Egypt, you know, they had it pretty good. They had none of them were alive in Egypt. You know, we tend to do that, too. We look back in the old days and wasn't it good back then and how tough we have it now. You know, they weren't there in Egypt. They didn't really know what it was like. But they looked back and said, you know, back then it was okay. And Joshua has to bring them up short and say, choose you this day whom you serve. You want to serve the Lord? Follow me. You, you don't want to serve the Lord? You know, that's your choice. Choose. But he enjoins upon them to obey. So a strong challenge of them to them to obey. 
We remember that uh, Joshua had a he had a personal foretaste of those blessings, the blessings of obedience, forty years prior, as one of those spies that went in. Do you ever sing that little Sunday school song? Twelve men went to spy in Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. There you go. You remember that. Kids online. What did they see when they spied in Canaan? They saw that they saw the blessings of the Lord. But some ignored it. Some refused to believe God. God had given them promises. He had told them this land was before them. He had given these 12 men opportunity to see the land, to see the blessings. They brought back these grapes that they had to carry between them. It was a symbol of the blessing. It was a sign of what uh, the kind of a land and what kind of blessings God had for them, a land that was called flowing with milk and honey. And yet some only could see the negative, only could see the challenges. And those challenges were real. And those challenges in your lives and mine are just as real. There are times when those giants loom before us. But Joshua chose at that time to believe God. Others refused to believe God. Joshua was the one, along with Caleb, those two, who put their trust in God, their faith in God, and now God calls him, and Caleb is still here with him. Caleb's the man who, in a subsequent chapter, says, Give me this mountain. I, my eyes, my strength is as good as it was 40 years ago. I'm ready to take the portion that God has given to me. Well, Joshua, right here, he's the same man that he was 40 years ago. Yes, 40 years older, flesh and bones, maybe a little more wear and tear, uh, experiences, disappointments, challenges. But his faith is unwavering. And God enjoins upon him that, you know, this time is no different than 40 years ago. This is going to require your obedience. This is going to require you following my instructions. This is going to require faith. I'm going to give you some instructions, Joshua, that are really hard to believe. Like, march around a city a number of times and the wall's just going to fall down. And the Lord says, Joshua... Believe in me. You're going to see miracles. You're going to see things happen, but you're going to see my promises fulfilled. You're going to lead these people into a place of blessing. You're going to be a, your people, my people, are going to be a blessing to the nations. So just an exhortation and encouragement. Just want to reflect back also for a moment with regards to uh, the death of Moses and why is it mentioned so prominently in, tr- in the introduction? Well, once again, the historical background at the beginning of this book places it right after the death of Moses. The, uh, this emphasis continues, as Joshua is told, Moses is dead. And it is a reminder to us of uh, the mortality of mankind uh, through sin, death has come upon all mankind. And we know that life has its limits. The death is, uh, of Moses is a reminder of this. But, but perhaps more so, very specifically, a reminder of the consequences of disobedience. Because, uh, as mentioned, you know, perhaps Moses might have lived longer, 
or the blessings of entering the land might have come sooner. You know, the Lord is a gracious God, although he said, no one's going to enter this land for 40 years. You're all going to die. You disobeyed. I'm not going to let you in. But, you know, there are, there are other times that God uh, made severe pronouncements and he withdrew and held back from them and was gracious and changed his mind because the people obeyed. And um, this happens throughout history. So the Lord is a gracious Lord. And we don't know, perhaps the Lord, perhaps Moses might have lived to see the land in a different way in an earlier time, or perhaps he might have lived longer and joined Joshua in this leadership. But it's a reminder not only of the general consequences of sin and our own mortality, but a specific reminder here of the consequences of disobedience, which is the theme this morning, the obedience, that Moses is dead because he disobeyed. Moses is dead because he had a failure. That's not to say that, you know, he was one who met on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord. Uh, He's the one uh, of whom the Lord spoke on the road to Emmaus, uh, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, uh, that he expounded to them all the things concerning himself. So it's... I'm not putting Moses down. I'm just saying that that is a reality of an observation of this passage and something that we can interpret from it, that disobedience, through one man's disobedience, Adam, sin came and by sin came death. Well, it was a very specific disobedience that ended Moses' opportunity to see the land. And also Moses had a couple of children. He had two sons. But they were not suitable to provide leadership. They were not suitable to provide leadership. So God chose someone else, chose Moses to provide the leadership. So as we start to come to an end of, uh, of this meditation, this sharing, think about some more applications. Uh, God's commands under the Mosaic Covenant were given in in a a great deal of detail in the book of Deuteronomy. They're summarized early in that book by the simple verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the summary of the law. And of course, the Lord Jesus adds in the Gospels, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These come out in the Mosaic Covenant. But loving the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your might, this is the way that the people of Israel were asked to demonstrate their love for God through obedience. By faith, They weren't able to do it. It's evident they weren't. You aren't able to do it. It's evident I'm not able to do it. But God enjoined upon them the way that Israel was to show their love for God was to meditate on his commandments, to meditate on them day and night. Uh, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. It's It's a restatement of what Moses enjoined upon the people in the book of Deuteronomy, to know the word of God, to love the God who wrote that word, to meditate on the details, to follow the details. You know, of course, 
I'm glad that we don't live in that time. Some of the details under which they had to express their love for God were onerous, were burdensome, were things that were tough to do, made for a hard life sometimes. Certainly is true, but, but God said, that's the way you show your love to me, by doing your best to uh, understand and meditate on and read the Mosaic Covenant and do your best to follow it. Those expressions of obedience were rewarded by God. And God did not expect perfection because even in that time, their, the, the law and their inability to keep the law and the faith by which they kept the law looked forward to the, the blood and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the sacrifices that they offered, as we know from the book of Hebrews, were insufficient to cover their failures, their sin, their lack of obedience, their lack of faith. So they offered these sacrifices. But even the things that they did by faith, were the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus was foreshadowed in their offerings and covered their sin, covered their failures, covered their weaknesses. So perfection, the Lord God knew that they couldn't be perfect, but their love for him was expressed by their best efforts to obey and keep the law and to follow those commandments that Moses had given them. And this comes out again in what the Lord instructed Joshua here in verse 8. James exhorts us in James chapter 1, some, really some concluding verses. James chapter 1. Verse 23 and 24. 21, James chapter 1, verse uh, 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror and so forth. So James exhorts us in these words of his epistle also about the importance of the word of God. And that would be the core of this message this morning, obedience by faith, the obedience of faith, the gospel, and all that it contains is really demonstrated by lives of heartfelt obedience in love to the Lord our God. To receive the word, to do what it says to the best of our ability with the strength of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. To act on that word, to be effectual doers of the word of God. Not just looking at the word and saying, that's nice, I'm going on my way, I don't like it, so, or I like it, it sounds good, it's nice for others, it's so glad that brother so-and-so or sister someone else is so hospitable and, you know, uh, she doesn't cuss and swear and she's not wicked and it's good to see some people are, no, the Lord enjoins upon each one of us to be faithful, faithful doers of the word to be faithful doers and not delude ourselves. It's called here the implanted word in the, in the book of James. 
So the lesson that I'm seeing is um, obedience to the word of God is a matter of attention to detail. Joshua was, was asked to understand the details, get into the details, observe the details. So our, our obedience is also a matter of details. Under, under Joshua's time of leadership, uh, there were great times of blessing, and there was a significant measure of victory. But at the end of the book of Joshua, we know that there were vast areas of the land that were never conquered. And so there was disobedience. There was incomplete obedience. And yet the Lord gave partial blessing. And so we should not be discouraged uh, as those who, uh, whether we lead in the assembly, whether we provide leadership in our families, in ministries, wherever we provide leadership as Joshua did, maybe one day God will appoint you to more significant leadership. Uh, maybe you have been in leadership. But in those areas, it's important for us in particular, and I use the term leadership not as formal appointment, but you can be a, a thought leader, a moral leader by your actions, by your words, by your example, even as a young boy or a young girl. And so in your leadership before other people, as you display yourself before others, you are uh, responsible to be an example, a model of faithful obedience. And God will bless you, and God will make you a light to others. That's ultimately what it's about. Not that you be glorified, but that Christ receive the ultimate glory, that God be glorified. So may the Lord add a blessing to these words. And let's just pray, and then I'd like to share a brief couple of words about, about Emmaus for a few minutes as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could never obey, I have not obeyed, and none of us can arrive at his level of obedience, obedient unto death. We thank you for those who have come before us that we look up to, including uh, those who have given their lives, the apostles, so many of the disciples who did exhibit obedience unto death, but none as perfect as the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his death uh, has, been brought about, has been brought to light eternity, immortality, the fact that we live on forever by faith, through faith in him. So we thank you for this day. We thank you for the words of scripture and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A brief video. So why should you consider the experience at Emmaus as opposed to somewhere else? I think it's very important to know who you are. I went to Emmaus to find out what God's Word said so that I could then, with a sure footing, push forward into the vocational uh, part of my life. So when I was first looking for schools, I knew that I wanted a really solid counseling program, but I also wanted a biblical core. Um, and I found that here at Emmaus. In my Bible classes, I'm not just learning biblical facts, but I'm also learning how the Bible applies to my life and how I can live it out in my Christian walk. But then in my counseling classes, I'm learning theories and I'm learning scientific information and how the brain works, but I'm also learning how to integrate my faith into that. 
So I've had the awesome experience to be part of Student Missionary Fellowship over the past two years. And what their purpose is, and part of the, the opportunity of service that it provides for students is really getting involved with missionaries who come from around the globe. This gives us an opportunity as students to be aware of what the Lord is doing in places like Burundi, Africa. It's an awesome opportunity not only for the missionaries to come to us, but for us to learn about them and be inspired by the work that the Lord is doing around the globe. My Emmaus experience has uh, been really transformational, learning how to serve and how to love and seeing the example in that from your professors and seeing how genuinely they care about you um, and then getting to apply that to your life and the knowledge you get in classes from how Jesus loved people too and it's teaching me how to be intentional in people's lives and I really am looking forward to taking that um, into the future too in the workplace, at the church, um, just in the community and I just see how it's preparing me long term and it's not just for right here. The soccer team, it's honestly been so fun, not just in the aspect of playing soccer, but the aspect of being able to fellowship with the team. Just seeing that team dynamic of love one another, serve one another, your team goes first and then soccer. That is an amazing thing that I've honestly never seen before. That's what the gospel does to people, is that at the end of the day, it's not about soccer, it's about fellowship. I had a group of four guys who got together every Thursday night and just poured over whatever we had read that week. Fiction, nonfiction, things in God's Word, things in uh, books that we'd read, and we would just discuss, and we loved to write too. So we'd get together and we'd uh, share whatever we'd written that week. Those relationships, we still keep in touch daily, uh, share our thoughts daily, and uh, it's the most lasting, lifelong uh, commitments I've ever had. Putting all those together, and just seeing how, yeah, my life has changed so far while I've been here, and I'm excited to see how else it continues to change. Thank you. Could you bring up uh, the webpage, www.emmaus.edu? If you're at home uh, and you're on your computer, don't log out of Zoom by accident. Uh, open a window and just open that home page. All right, there's three phrases on there. I'd like to just take three minutes here, just real briefly, but... Three things that make Emmaus a special place. And, of course, it goes without saying, the people at Emmaus really make it special. People like our board members, people like our employees, people who minister, who serve. Uh, it's undeniable that it's a place of relationships, the Emmaus experience, people. But there are three key distinctives that are very important to us. First of all, Christ-centered education. So we aspire for uh, the Emmaus campus community to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in everything we do. We don't always achieve that. If you've been to Emmaus, if you're, a far, if you're an alumnus, if you visited us, you know these things are true. You also know we stumble, we fall. But our desire in our athletics, in our dorm life, in our student life, in our cafeteria in everything we do to be Christ-centered. It doesn't mean we're a monastery. We do have rules in which we can have confidence, but um, Christ-centered education. So there are other colleges that do the same thing, that aspire to do the same thing. There's other wonderful 
Christian universities. So then I'll go to the second point, that one of the things that is distinctive about us, which continues from generation to generation, this is our 80th year, actually, is our uncompromised biblical teaching. Seasoned and trusted Bible teachers deliver the doctrines and theologies of the Old Testament and New Testament on a daily basis from beginning to the end. The entire scope of Scripture. When we teach inerrancy of Scripture at Emmaus Bible College, we mean exactly what that says. We haven't changed the meaning of inerrancy to be squishy like, well, that's what's going on in some places, unfortunately, in some Christian communities, that inerrancy is being challenged. It's a big challenge. And people who use the word don't necessarily mean all of what it used to mean, but we mean literal, verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. We don't waffle on things like creation, like sexual identity, the coming of the Lord, dispensational teaching, things that have been precious and we believe have implications for the interpretation of scripture. So uncompromised biblical teaching. There is a tendency in places to redefine a number of different things and use the same words and make you feel like you're confident, but sometimes you need to look under the hood and understand exactly what are we going to be exposed to and what is being delivered to us. Of course, non-Christian universities much more so, but never at Emmaus, as long as the Lord gives us strength and wisdom and vision and purpose for this, that's our desire, uncompromised biblical teaching to present absolute truth of Scripture as unwavering, time-tested truths. So that's what is desperately needed. And then thirdly, at the bottom, in these latter years, what we have added is valuable professional degrees. So we're not a seminary. There are students who go on to seminary, to graduate theological institutions from Emmaus. But our goal is to prepare young men and women to serve the Lord wherever he calls them. In the town of Dubuque, there are a number of bank presidents that I know that tell me, and they're not Christians, you have great kids who we employ, wonderful business administration graduates. I'm proud of that because in a humble way, but I taught some of those kids. They were in my classes when I started there, teaching them marketing, teaching them other aspects. Uh, same with computer science kids, same with counseling people as they work in social areas in ministries throughout a region. It's wonderful to hear the testimony of others to see the testimony there of this man who's a nurse who works in the emergency, the administration of emergency uh, medicine, and he's one of our graduates as well. He's an Emmaus Bible College graduate in Dubuque working in the hospital. So every student studies the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, but we've added these valuable professional degrees, nursing, health sciences, teacher education. So the point is the confluence of these three items, Christ-centered, uncompromised biblical teaching, valuable professional degrees. It's what we do. And come to Emmaus, come and join us. Uh, you know, come and take an online course. We're developing that further. And thank you, for, uh, thank you for the prayers, the ongoing prayers, the, uh, the support for Emmaus. We, we appreciate it. It truly is a ministry. It's a beautiful place. It's not just a small private college. It's not just accredited. It is all of those things, but it really is a place where relationships are formed, where people go on and serve the Lord for their life. And we see that 
on a regular basis, and I'm privileged to spend this period of my life involved in this way. It's, it's an amazing privilege, and I'm thankful to God what he's doing through, uh, through the college. So thank you for this opportunity to be with you on this Lord's Day, this weekend. It was wonderful to meet so Betty and say hi to some more maybe on the way out. May God bless. Thank you.